I was having fun playing. Thank you, Don. Appreciate you being here this morning. You know, one thing that they don't teach you in premarital counseling is how to name your kids, right? And that can be quite a chore. Unless you're naming your child a junior or after somebody in your family, then it's pretty easy. Otherwise, you've got to really put some thought into what you're going to name your kid. Because that name's going to be rolling off your tongue forever, right? Especially when they're young and they're getting in trouble a lot. You want to make sure that that name is one you don't mind repeating over and over again. And so there's some things to consider before you name your child. If your spouse or you dated someone with a certain name, you probably want to stay clear of that name. Um, If you're like me and you taught school and you had a rather belligerent kid by a certain name, you're probably not going to name your child after, after that person. You know, they don't really teach you how to name your kids, and so you got to consider that because, you know, what if they get in junior high and that name gets twisted and contorted and used as a way to mock or make fun of your child? So it's important. Names are important. My mother was a school teacher, and she had, for the many, many years that she taught, some kids with some interesting names. Uh, she had Ben Dover, actually, in her class. Um, she had twins, Brandy and Tequila. That was interesting. You don't want to be like the Mann family, M-A-N-N, who named their daughter Anita, Anita Mann. Um, I had a friend whose name was Justin Case. Maybe you've heard that name. Um, If you follow sports, there's a quarterback whose last name is Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T. His first name is Always, Always Wright. Um, Names are unique. They define a person in a lot of ways. And so you want to make sure that you pick just the right name for your child. In Isaiah chapter 9, we have been looking over the last few weeks at the various names or monikers given to this child that is going to be born. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Let's read it again. It says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall rest upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Understand that when the Israelite people heard these words for the first time, they didn't get out their New Testament and turn over to John 3.16 and say, oh yeah, Jesus. No, what they would have been thinking was an immediate fix. They would have thought a king, an earthly king in the lineage of David. That would have been their first thought. They had had some good kings. 
Uzziah had his share of problems, but he was a good king. For 50 years, there was peace and prosperity, and that may be the best measuring stick of a king, that you live in a land of peace and prosperity. They had Jotham, who was also a good king. Later, they had Hezekiah, who was a great king and had, had great character. But sandwiched in between, they had this guy named Ahaz, and we've already talked about Ahaz. Ahaz wasn't a great king. Ahaz certainly didn't live up to the character of Hezekiah. And so when the people hear about this new king coming, they're thinking earthly. They're thinking you know, in the line of Uzziah or Jotham. They're hopeful anyway that it won't be another Ahaz, but it'll be another Uzziah. And so there was a problem. Because the names, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, those are names assigned to divinity. Even the Israelite people knew that. And so while they're thinking earthly, they're recalling these names that Isaiah mentions, and they're saying, now wait a minute, it would be blasphemous to call an earthly king mighty God. So what's going on here? So there would have been confusion, especially when you consider that this baby was going to be an everlasting father. But they're still encouraged. Again, we have to be careful not to read our own presuppositions into the text. We know how this turns out. We have the benefit of seeing it later. But put yourself in the position of an Israelite. Many rulers in ancient times were known as the father of their country. We see this throughout the centuries. Alexander the Great was the father of the Greeks. Genghis Khan was the father of the Mongols. Nelson Mandela, the father of the nation of South Africa. As for Americans, George Washington is the father of our country, right? And we had founding fathers like Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson. So in one sense, we could say that Isaiah's prophecy includes the Messiah being the father of the nation of Israel. Now understand too, and we'll get into this more later, but Messiah is not a title just reserved for Jesus, okay? There have been many Messiahs throughout Israel's history. David was a Messiah because Messiah means anointed one, okay? So it wouldn't have been unusual for them to look at an earthly king as a Messiah because that was just, you know, common thought. But as they see the father of this nation coming, they would have thought of a father of a nation much like the father of a... Of an, of an earthly household. Somebody that provides and protects for the family. That's what a, a founding father does. That's what a, a father of a nation does. He protects and provides for his family, for the nation, right? A child will be born to us who will be a father of a nation. Not only that, he will rule over all the nations. He will protect and provide for his people. And he'll do this for all eternity. So we can kind of see how the people may have said, okay, I hear you, Isaiah, but you know, while I'm a little confused, I'm intrigued, keep talking. The Hebrew translation for everlasting father could just as easily be translated father of eternity. The Hebrew word for everlasting just means perpetuity or without end. And so as everlasting father, the anointed one, Jesus, will be father and his fatherhood will be without end. He is our forever father, right? Okay, so enough of the theological exercise. Let's, let's look for a moment at what it means to be a forever father. The word father is a mixed bag among some of you. I know that. Some of you didn't have a great father. Some of you had a terrific father. But here's a theory I have, and maybe it's more of an opinion, and you're free to disagree with me. This is not absolute truth by any means. But I tend to think that in the heart of every child, there is this longing for acceptance from their father. In fact, here's another opinion I have. I tend to think that children get their first impression of God from their father. Now, that is not in any way to discredit 
the role of the mother. Mothers are invaluable in the life of a family. And in some families, the mother is playing the role of both spiritual leader that the father should take on and as mother. Mothers are invaluable. Don't want to discount them at all. But I do believe that we kind of get our first impression of God uh, you know, from our earthly fathers, which can be good and bad, right? Because some of us had a father that was never, some of us had a father that was seldom, and some of us had a father that was always. In other words, some of you had a father that was never present, never around, never there. Some of you had a father who was seldom present, seldom there, seldom around. And some of you had a father who was always present, always engaged, always there for you. But no matter what, father being a mixed bag, no matter what kind of father you had, I want to tell you something that I told you two years ago on Father's Day that I'm sure you remember, right? And it's this, your heavenly father is not an enhanced version of your earthly father. Instead of looking at your earthly father and then going to God, look at God first. Let him be the source. Start with your heavenly father. Let God be your first source of fatherhood because if you don't start with God, the heavenly father, then you're going to be disappointed more than likely. If you don't start with the original, you're always going to have a replica. And A.W. Tozer stated this. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Do you believe that? I do. I believe that. I believe what you think about God says everything about you. It's that important. Because how we perceive God determines how we relate to God, and how we relate to God determines everything else in our lives. What we believe about God is the most important thing about us, and here are three irrefutable facts. First of all, God never quits on us. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. That's Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Our forever father doesn't deal in terms of seldom. He doesn't deal in terms of seldom. He is all in on us. And there are many scriptures that attest to this. My favorite is Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There can be no more all-in statement than sending your only begotten son to die on a cross for undeserving people like you and me. And finally, our forever father is always there. Always. David states it this way. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Folks, I have a great dad. I have a dad that I can call at any time. And if his phone is working, he answers it. And I say that because my dad is cheap and he buys these cheap phones. And a lot of times they don't work. But if it is working, he'll answer and I can share my innermost thoughts with him. I, I can lay it all on him, and he listens. He is a dear, dear friend to me. But I cannot address him as my Father who art in heaven. I cannot do that. And that's one of the major differences between my earthly dad and my heavenly father. My dad, Larry, is, is an earthly father. My God in heaven is, is a heavenly father, which means that hallow is a name that's only reserved 
for the God in heaven. He has a kingdom. He has sent his king. Only he can provide for my daily needs. Only he can forgive me of my sins. Only he can deliver me from the devil. My, my dad, my earthly dad, would happily do all those things. But that's not within his capabilities. He can't do that. Only my heavenly father is capable. And I am just, a, I'm just an earthly father myself. I make mistakes. I am sinful. Yet I love my kids so much it hurts. How can I not trust in a perfect father who loves me more than I could ever even love my own kids, right? I want to take an exit off the interstate for just a few minutes. Look with me at Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. And pertaining to the subject of prayer, Jesus says these words to his disciples. He says, pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Take note of the first line. As Jesus gives his disciples a template for prayer, he begins with the address, and then he says, when you pray, make sure you pray to your father. You don't address him as tyrant. You don't say, dear dictator. This is not some aloof, impersonal being. You don't address him even as king or supreme ruler of the cosmos. You address him as father because this is not a stoic or positional relationship. This is an intimate, loving, and personal relationship. And notice what follows the our father portion of the model prayer. The first three petitions have to do with God and His glory. The next three are focused on needs and necessities. Because prayer is never about bending God's will to my will, is it? It's always about bending my will to His. Prayer should always be about submitting my life and my will to the will of God. But I also want you to notice the second part of this prayer. And it deals with three human needs within three realms of time. You see the request for daily bread. Bread is necessary for sustaining life. Not just bread, but bread representing food as a whole, right? This is a need for the present time. Then there's the request for forgiveness, which is a request that is past. Past tense, right? Forgive me of my sins. And then there's the petition for help in times of temptation, which is a request for God to be there in the future. And so in this model prayer, we see bringing the whole life of a person to the presence of God is what's essential. You could also look at it this way. When we ask God for our daily bread, we are directing our cares and concerns towards God the Father, the creator and sustainer of life. When we seek forgiveness for our sins, we are directing our thoughts towards the Son of God, our Savior and Redeemer. And when we ask for help for temptation in the future, that immediately directs our thoughts toward God the Spirit, the Comforter. Isn't it incredible that in this short, simple prayer, we see the whole of human life, past, present, and future, we see it presented to the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In other words, Jesus teaches us to bring our entire lives before the fullness of God. But it's the first two words of the model prayer that set the tone for all of it. Everything that is to follow, 
is a result of God being your Father who is in heaven. And hallowed be his name. It wasn't always this way, mind you. You go back to the Old Testament, it wasn't always this way. It wasn't always this way for God's people. At Sinai, God was unapproachable. God called Moses to the mountain and showed him the lightning and the fire, the smoke. Moses then returned to tell the people to stay back. Stand back. If you or your animals come near, you'll be struck dead. Even Moses couldn't look God in the face and live. At Sinai, God was unapproachable. But something changed, didn't it? What changed? Here's what changed. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. In Jesus, the unapproachable God becomes approachable. All access into the presence of God must be mediated. And we have a mediator, don't we? The message at Sinai was stand back. The message at Calvary has come near. Sinai was filled with with darkness and, and, and gloom and smoke. Calvary is filled with light. It radiates with the light of our Savior. Jesus came to reveal God's fatherly character to us. Over and over again, Jesus refers to God as Abba, Father, an intimate and personal address that would have certainly made the Jewish people sit up and take notice. Because in their minds, you did not address God this way. This is not the way you address God. There were proper titles of respect for God. There were ways that you could address God, but none of them included something as intimate as Abba, Father. So Isaiah is setting up a concept that would have been rather foreign to the Jewish mindset. The child that will be born will be a king, but not from an earthly lineage like David's. He will reign and rule, but not on an earthly throne like Uzziah and Jotham and those He will rescue his people from bondage, but not from the bondage of physical slavery. He will defeat the enemy, but that enemy will not be a rival nation. And he will reveal the nature and the essence of God the Father. Not only that, he will tear down the curtain that separated people from his presence. He will cleanse us of our sins once and for all. He will restore the broken relationship because that's what fathers do, right? Fathers don't stop loving their children. Even if they disappoint them greatly. Fathers don't stop loving their children. Fathers don't give up on their children. They seek them out. They welcome them home. They they have a loving embrace waiting for them. Because above all else, they love them. And like I've said before, it just drives me nuts when we present God as some ruthless dictator waiting for us to mess up or break a rule so he can turn us into a french fry for all eternity. That's not how the Bible presents God. We talk about it all the time. Following rules is great. There are commandments given to us. But we seem to think that the whole of our existence is to keep those commandments or those rules fully. Folks, rules modify behavior. That's all they do. Without a relationship, they don't mean anything. we got to be careful not to practice checklist Christianity here. Well, I follow all the rules, I'm in. No, 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 no. Your fellowship exists in your relationship with God if that makes sense. 
Who we are is defined by who we belong to. Our identity is not found in following all the rules. Our identity is found in following Jesus Christ. And if you follow Jesus Christ, you will naturally conform to his will and do the things that he has asked of you because you love him and you want to please him. The Bible does not present God as some ruthless tyrant or dictator that's just waiting to catch you, not crossing every T and dotting every I. The Bible presents God as a father who wants what is best for his children. And we need to see him as such because it makes all the difference. How you perceive God says everything about you. And if you only see God as someone who demands you keep all the rules or else, you don't have a correct perception of God. You certainly are not following the God of the Bible. Because Scripture paints a God who is a loving Father, who wants nothing more than His children to be in heaven with Him someday. You've got to step over the cross of Christ to get to hell, folks. That's how far your heavenly Father has taken it so that he can have a relationship with you. Many of you know I grew up in the Holy Land uh, in Arkansas, nine miles from the Missouri Boot Hill. It's called Cardinal Country, so my favorite baseball team has always been the St. Louis Cardinals. Every year we'd make that pilgrimage to St. Louis, which would be like you guys going to Arlington to watch the Rangers. We'd drive up to St. Louis, we'd watch a game, and I was fortunate to grow up in an era when the Cardinals were really good. You had Ozzie Smith, Terry Pendleton, Willie McGee, Bruce Souter, all these great names. But my favorite St. Louis Cardinal was Keith Hernandez. Keith Hernandez was a phenomenal player. 1979 National League MVP, won two World Series. He batted over 307 times in his career, multiple gold glove winners. But of all the great accomplishments, of all the people like me who love Keith Hernandez, there was one person he could never please. And do you know who it was? His dad. Finally, one day he confronted the situation. He looked his dad in the eye and he said these words. He said, Dad, I have a lifetime 300 batting average. What more do you want? And his dad replied, but someday you're going to look back and say, I could have done more. How horrible it is to want so bad the acceptance of your father and not being able to gain it, right? How terrible it must be to want acceptance and love from your father for who you are and not just what you accomplished. Yet Keith Hernandez never really found that and some never find that as well. And it's even sadder when all your efforts to gain that fail. We all want acceptance and recognition from our Father. Many of us go to great lengths to try and, and earn it. But here's the beauty of our forever Father. He loves you. God loves you. And you don't have to earn that. And I can be so confident in this because if you wanted to debate me, I would just point you to the cross. Because never has there been a more, a more confident picture of how much our God loves us than the fact that he would send his only begotten son to die a cruel death for undeserving people like you and me.
Let's pray. Most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day, for this opportunity to be here, to be together. Keep us safe and well, God. Help us to live at the center of your will. Help us, God, to be more like Jesus. May we seek to be children who make their father proud. And may we always have a correct concept of who you are and how Scripture presents you as a loving father who wants what's best for us. May we all be a people after your own heart, God. And it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Maybe you're struggling in a relationship with your father. Maybe your earthly father, but your heavenly father. That is a relationship you need to make, make right this morning. Maybe you're ready to uh, take a next step in faith. Maybe you need prayers in support of this church family. Please don't leave here this morning without being right with your heavenly father. Don's going to lead us in a song. If we can help you in any way, why don't you come? We stand and as we sing.